Are you familiar with the phrase, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news? The bad news is usually then given first, followed by the good news. And over the past couple of weeks in our study of the letter of Romans, Paul has been giving us the bad news. From Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.20, Paul has shown that all people are guilty before God, judged and condemned, and powerless to change their situation. That's bad news. Today in our study, Paul gives us the good news. You might recall I said at the end of the Bible study last time that our story if it ended with what Paul writes to us in Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.20, then we are without hope. It tells us no one can justify their self before God and earn entrance into His presence to receive salvation and eternal life. We can't go to heaven by being a good person. Thankfully, our story doesn't end there. We read in the next verses that our story is very different. And in fact, before we closed last week, we read the next few verses in Romans 3, 21 through 24, just so that you wouldn't go home from our study last week with only bad news. I wanted to kn you to know that there is good news. So today we're going to take a closer look at those next verses and the good news that they talk about. So Romans 3, and we're picking up in verse 21. Romans 3, verse 21. It says, but, I want to stop right there. This but changes the message from one of despair and sadness to one of unbelievable hope and joy. It changes the message from one of ruin and misery to one of salvation and celebration. So it says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now I just want you to remember, I want to make sure you remember that the law that Paul is talking about is not the law of our land, the law of our country and government, but the law of God given through Moses to the Jewish people and what we have in our Bible as our Old Testament. This message, it says the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness is given. One of the most difficult things for people to get their heads around when it comes to the gospel is the idea that this righteousness, this salvation, is a gift that must simply be accepted. It runs counter to our normal way of thinking. We think the right and proper thing for us to do is to earn God's favor, to, to do something to merit or deserve it. We, we need to somehow convince God to accept us, to see us as worthy, because that is the way our world runs. But when we think that way, we are grossly underestimating the hopelessness of our situation, and we are grossly overestimating our ability to overcome it. 
We don't have the ability to overcome our lostness. This righteousness, this salvation, this new life, this new future, it must be given to us. There's no other way for us to get it. And how do we, how do we receive this gift of righteousness that's offered to us? Through faith in Jesus Christ, it says. Our culture talks about faith a lot. But it's a very different thing than what we're talking about here. Our culture tells us, just have faith. And virtually any problem that we are facing can be overcome. We see this sage advice given over and over again in TV shows, in movies, in books, in songs. You just have to have faith. The truth is, that's a lot of silly feel-good nonsense when we are talking about salvation and our status with God. Our faith needs to be in Jesus Christ. Our faith is of no effect otherwise. Faith in faith is nothing. It's no good if our faith is in God in a general sense either. Our faith needs to be in the one and only true God who has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture and entered into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. It must be faith in that Jesus Christ. Our culture tells us that we can make up our own way to God however we each understand God to be. Nope. That's all human imagination. The real God has a definite way for us to know Him, and He has provided salvation for us in a definite way. I mean, if we think about it, it just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if, if I approached getting to know you that way, you would not be happy about it. I'm going to get to know you by imagining you the way that I want to think you to be. I want to make up my own ideas about who you are. You'd say, oh, hold on. I'm a real person, and I want you to know who I really am, not how you imagine me to be. See, that approach, it, it works fine if God isn't real. If God is just a construction of our individual minds, then God can be whatever we each imagine God to be, what difference does it make? But if we're talking about the real God, and the real God, he isn't imagined any more than you and I are imagined. Instead, the real God needs to be known. And amazingly, the real God has invited us to know him. So it continues, it says, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. We've talked before about how, from the perspective of the culture that the Bible was originally written in, especially in Old Testament times, all people, all people are divided into just two groups. Jews and Gentiles. If you are not a Jew, then you are a Gentile by default. So when Paul says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, he's saying that there's no difference between all people of all kinds when it comes to our relationship with God. All people 
have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is what Paul has written extensively about in Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.20. This is the bad news that we have talked about over the past couple of weeks. And he says, though, and all are justified freely by his grace. This is the good news. Who can receive this gift of righteousness? Who can benefit from this good news? All who believe, it tells us in verse 22. All who have faith in Jesus Christ. All are justified freely by His grace, it says here. That word translated freely, it means without cost, as a free gift, without paying for it. The word grace, it means kindness done without expecting return payment. A free expression of loving kindness with its only motive being the generosity and benevolence of the one giving. And why do I point this out? Because it's important that we not fall into the trap of letting our faith become a work, an act to earn God's acceptance. People can think they need to feel faith and start trying to work up the right kind of feelings to make sure they have faith. If our salvation requires that we have a certain kind of feeling all of the time, a certain a devotional attitude or a certain kind of surrendered mindset, then we're putting ourselves right back where we started, depending on ourself to do something and to be something to deserve God's acceptance. If we start thinking that way about our faith, it won't be long before we discover that we're not able to maintain the level of the kind of faith that we have established in our mind that we need to maintain. We can't be good enough long enough. We can't be faithful long enough. And if we start thinking our faith is the cause of our salvation, we stop looking at Jesus and we start looking at our faith. And then when we don't feel a certain expected buzzy warmth, we start worrying about our salvation not being real and secure. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, the person who has faith is the person who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at Anything he once was, he does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and he rests on that alone. Faith is the instrument we use to receive and take hold of our salvation. It's not the cause of our salvation. This is through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. The word redemption is, it means the releasing from bondage through the paying of a price. The death of Jesus Christ is the price that was paid to set us free from the sentence against us. And this is expanded upon in the next verses in verse 25. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. You see that? To be received by faith comes up again. 
God is the judge who has found us guilty of breaking his law. We have sinned both against God and one another. And for God to be righteous, it's necessary that he hold the guilty responsible for their crimes. See, if he just arbitrarily decided to bend the rules and let us off, he would be a judge of questionable character. He would not be righteous. He would be playing fast and loose with the law. He would be acting like we often do. But rather than setting his justice aside, God has turned it on himself to set us free. The judgment against us has been put on his perfect law-keeping son, Jesus Christ, in our place. It's as if the judge pounds his gavel, declaring us guilty and pronouncing a sentence of death on us. He then steps out from behind the judge bench. He removes his robe and he stands in front of us at the firing squad and he takes the fatal bullet for us, dying in our place. In the crucifying of Jesus, we have both the justice of God and the love of God being fully satisfied and realized. It says he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, and he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is God, puts, God, God has put the sins of every human being who has ever lived, past, present, and future, on his precious son Jesus Christ when he was crucified. No sin has been left unpunished and unatoned for. People who live before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, they put their faith in God's promise of redemption that was coming in Christ. They looked forward to Christ in a similar way that we look back to Christ. In verses 27 through 31, Paul addresses three things to help complete his explanation of justification by faith. The first is in 27 through 28, where he writes, Where then is boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul confronted the Jews back in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 and 23 about their boasting about being Jews, about being the people who had been given the law of God. See, they took pride in being Jews. They had a self-satisfaction and a confidence about being the chosen people of God and the higher moral standards that they lived by and so on. They believed this, this all got them this privileged place with God. And Paul, he confronts them again here, asking the question, where then is boasting? See, when we realize that we are all given righteousness by God and justified freely by His grace, all through faith in Jesus Christ, rather than because of any thing we have done, 
then there's no way for us to legitimately boast. We have been, we've done nothing to deserve or earn our salvation and our place with God. It's all been given to us. So he goes, where's the boasting? There's nothing to boast about in yourself then. It helps us to understand what Paul means here by looking at what he says in telling his own story found in Philippians chapter 3, verses, beginning in verse 4, Philippians 3, verse 4. We'll take a look at that quickly. He says, If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Before Paul put his faith in Christ, he boasted in his accomplishments as a Jew. And he provides a pretty impressive list of credentials and achievements here in these verses. He had followed the law as well as anyone. But now he considers all of that as garbage in comparison to what he has in Christ. A righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says he puts no confidence in those things anymore. He came to realize that his best achievements had done nothing to justify him before God. They could never get him what he really needs and wants. Salvation, eternal life, resurrection. Paul says in Philippians 3.3 that he now boasts in Christ rather than in himself and his Jewishness. Well, you know, boasting is not a problem only for Jews, is it? Boasting is a problem for all people. One commentator has accurately said that boasting is the language of our fallen self-centeredness. Boasting is an attempt to prove our worth and importance. And it's grounded in the weakest of all things, ourself. If we have our worth grounded in Jesus Christ, then there's no need for us seeking affirmation and accolades from other people. If He is the most important one in our life, and He has given us the most important thing in life, then what do we need to strive for with others? What do we have to prove? What do I need from others? I have the greatest of all treasures in Christ. Now, obviously, we want to do a good job and be the best we can be at what we do in this life. But not to be better than others, not to climb the ladder higher and faster than the other guy. 
Do not step on the neck of the guy who is foolish enough to get in front of us. Instead, we do it as an act of worship and gratitude directed at the Lord and for the joy that comes from doing our best. Colossians 3.23, Paul wrote, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Verse 29, Romans 3, we're flipped back there again. This is the second thing that he talks about. He says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Paul restates here a basic truth that he has made reference to throughout his letter up to this point, that there is only one God, and he is the God of all people, providing salvation for all people in the same way through faith in Jesus Christ. And then verse 31 is his third thing that he uh, deals with here. He says, Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Some ask, well, what is the point of the law? If everyone is justified by faith, it, it seems that being justified by faith nullifies the law. It makes the law of no value that there's no reason for us to pay any attention to the law. And Paul responds saying, we uphold the law. The one who has put their faith in Christ, trusting in God's righteousness rather than their own, embracing the crucifixion of Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for their sins, is actually freed to love and seek to follow the law of God more than they ever were before. If a person's trying to be saved by following the law, then they will naturally tend toward doing a couple of things. One is, is they will change the law to make it easier for them to meet its requirements. They will add conditions, for example, to the law so they can then justify themselves not keeping the law and the commands under certain circumstances. They will create their own laws that will keep them from having to directly confront the real law of God. The complicated Sabbath laws of the Jews come to mind as an example of this. Because this person's salvation and status before God are at stake, it is, it is vitally important that they create a system that they can actually do. A set of rules that they can really keep. So they lower the holy standard of God's righteousness to a level that syncs up with their willingness and their abilities. Makes sense, right? That that is what would happen. Well, second... This person can become discouraged, hating their self for repeatedly failing to keep the rules. And they can grow resentful even towards God because in their mind he has placed an impossible burden on them that they can't carry. He's given them an impossible set of rules to keep. But when a person has come to trust in Christ for their salvation, we're freed from that. We don't need to change the law to make it easier. 
Instead, we can embrace the perfect, holy ideal of the Lord for all that it is and seek to put it into practice moment by moment in our life. Think of the morality that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as an example here. The moral standards that Jesus teaches are more difficult than what the Jews were seeking to follow. I'll give you just some quick examples. Matthew 5.21, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Matthew 5.27, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5.43, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, Jesus' moral standards are higher. They're higher because they represent the heart of God rather than simply a set of rules to be followed. And it's the heart of God that we want to pursue and not just a set of rules. We don't have to be discouraged and hate ourselves and grow resentful toward God, even though we will and do struggle to keep the law of the Lord, because our salvation is independent on us keeping the rules. Instead, we can joyfully seek to do what pleases our Father. We can love His law, love His ways, love His holiness, love His perfection, knowing His ways are the best way to be a human being. We have the Holy Spirit in us, moving us to follow the ways of the Lord, and He's continually building the character of Jesus in us as we walk with Him. See, we don't see the gospel giving us permission to practice sin and to pursue our own selfish ends. We know that would displease our Father. And living that way will produce what is avoidable, suffering and pain in our life and the lives of others around us. Remember, sin has natural consequences that make it costly and foolish as a way of life. Instead, we want to cooperate with the Holy Spirit who wants to grow His beautiful fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We should be dedicated keepers of the law of the Lord, His moral law we're talking about here, not the religious ceremonial law of the Jews. That, that's a different thing. That's not what we're talking about.
because we appreciate the Lord's ways on a deep, reverent level, and we are free to keep those laws without having the crushing burden and fear of our place with the Lord being at stake when we fall short. We can just get back up and try again, knowing that our Father is for us rather than against us. He's not trying to ruin our life. He's not trying to make our life exceedingly difficult. He's not trying to make sure we don't have any fun. Rather, he's seeking to create in us the nature of Jesus. And the person who has received salvation from God through faith in Jesus Christ, we have received salvation through Jesus Christ. He just gives it to us. That person can say from their heart the words of the psalmist about God's law. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me, and they make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. That becomes a reality in the life of the person who has received salvation through Jesus Christ by faith. His words are sweet, sweeter than honey. Oh, Lord, make it so in us. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your good word. And we thank you, Father, that because of the salvation that you give us through Jesus Christ, the whole character of how the law sits with us, how it feels to us, how it tastes to us, how it expresses itself in our life, it, it all changes. It becomes this beautiful thing. Because we're seeking the heart of our Father, seeking to put His character in our own life to be like Jesus. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and what you have done for us through him. I ask you bless each of us today with a renewed appreciation. In Jesus' name, amen.